So before we turn to scripture, I must also acknowledge the bittersweet feelings I have carrying into this worship service with you today, the dear people of Fourth Church. As Rocky indicated, I have accepted a call to become the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, Georgia. And I know that many of you were surprised by this news. I was surprised by the sense of call too, and yet I trust it is faithful. And I have absolutely no doubt that all will be well here at Fourth Church. I see this full sanctuary, our new members, our confirmands, who we will receive shortly, as yet more testimonies to the vitality and the strength of our ministry here, even as we all move into the season of transition. We will have more time to say what needs to be said, but I simply wanted to thank you for being who you are. Oh shoot, I have my Kleenex. I treasure these last nine years. And don't forget I'm here until May 28th, so you're not rid of me yet. Okay, let's get to God's judgment, shall we? So our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 through 46. I invite you to listen for God's living word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the shepherd king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the shepherd king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. I believe in Jesus Christ. From thence he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Throughout this season of Eastertide, we continue on in our Apostles' Creed series. Today, 
We are now on the last affirmation of the creed to speak about the one we call Jesus, our Savior and our brother. But before we dive in more deeply, let's get one thing out of the way, shall we? What on earth does the noun quick refer to? It's important to know that we are not speaking about speed. We are not saying that Jesus our Christ will come again to judge those who are really fast. Rather, the earliest English meaning of the word quick is alive. As far back as Aristotle, it was assumed that the first time a pregnant person would feel the baby move in the womb, that indicated the baby had finally come to life. That particular moment was called the quickening. So when we make the theological claim that Jesus Christ will come to judge the quick, in the dead, we are saying that we trust that the one we know as God in Jesus Christ will indeed be at the end of all time, judging all living things, people, nations, cultures, etc. The quick and the dead is simply theological shorthand for everything and everyone. So now that we have that out of the way, let's get to the real eyebrow-raising part of the statement, the judgment part. Some of you have heard me say that according to legend, the reformer Martin Luther once quipped that the tension between grace and judgment is like a drunk man riding on a horse. You're always going to fall off on one side or the other. And over the last nine years of our ministry together, I hope you know I always am going to fall off on the side of grace, which is the reason I wondered this week why I didn't assign this part of the creed to one of my colleagues on the Sunday when they were preaching. Nevertheless, it is at this moment of the creed when theologian Daniel Migliori claims that we are, quote, now at the point where the gospel is found or lost in the interpretation of this affirmation of the creed. We are also at the point where church divisions have occurred and continue to occur. Are we accepted by the astonishing grace of God that is received by faith, or must we prove ourselves acceptable by our works. I find that statement provocative. We are now at the point where the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is either found or lost, depending a great deal on how we interpret this one creedal statement. And that need for interpretation is why I chose the passage from Matthew 25. It might help us get at what we, as Reformed theological tradition, mean when we claim that the one we know as Jesus our Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Now let's first settle ourselves again in the Gospel of Matthew since we've been moving in and out of many different scriptures over the course of this series. This passage that we heard is the fifth and final speech by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately following this text, we quickly move into the narrative of Jesus' last days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. This implies that knowing all that was about to happen to him, Jesus chooses to speak in another parable about the way God will go about judging all of creation. And in the picture Jesus paints for us, we see Jesus as king, as sovereign, victorious over all creation. Furthermore, we also see Jesus as the holy shepherd, going about the business of gathering and sorting and judging. But when we listen carefully to the picture Jesus paints, we might realize that in this text, judgment is not related to the things that we might choose. 
Christ's judgment is not at all like the kind of sorting and judging we do with each other every single day. In this passage, we notice that divine judgment is not related one bit to one's theology or one's political affiliation or even to one's profession of faith. Did you catch that both the sheep and the goats call Jesus Lord? We don't even see the word sin in the entire passage about judgment. And for us Reformed Presbyterians, that might feel a little strange. No, here in Matthew 25, the kind of judgment about which Jesus speaks seems to be all about one thing. As writer Kathleen Norris once put it, it's all about God's holy insistence on imaginative living. Did we live our lives so imaginatively that when we saw the face of a struggling sheep, we saw the face of Christ present in that face? Did we use daily the gift of holy imagination so that we saw each person, including those who've been butted around or battered most of their life, as a child of God, equal of value to us, a fellow member of God's family, regardless of who they were or what they believed? And did we treat them accordingly? Or, as Norris continued, were we spiritually lazy? Did we live as those who gave into the temptation of slothful living by failing to exercise the hard work of God's imagination? To paraphrase the great preacher Fred Craddock, did we see the face of another child who was shot in Chicago and say, well, it's not my kid? Or did we look at a recent widower sitting on a pew by himself and say, well, that's not my dad? Or do we pass by a person sitting up against the bus stop in front of the Walgreens down the street or down by one of the bridges across the river and say, well, it's not my mom or my brother or my sister or my friend? If I understand the text, it seems that the judgment of Matthew 25 centers on God's insistence that we use the holy imagination that God gives us. The holy imagination that we practice here in worship week after week, a holy imagination that allows us to see Christ in each other, in ourselves, and in even the most weakest or most difficult sheep around. How do we use that gift? Do we use it? Does it affect the decisions we make and the ways that we go about our lives or do we give in to a little bit of spiritual laziness, look out upon the world and everything that God has made and say, well, I just don't have time to care. It's not my problem. Do we kind of lazily shrug our shoulders and determine, I don't see how I could have done one thing about it. Jonathan Kozel, the writer who's devoted most of his career to studying and writing about children in poverty, once stated that he's now actually embarrassed to remember some of the ways he, by which he himself would talk about the need for stronger safety nets. He wrote that he used to march up to Capitol Hill in Washington to advocate for programs like Head Start. And he would say things like, every dollar you invest in Head Start today will save the country much more money later or in lower prison costs. Kozal confesses he's ashamed he ever phrased it that way. 
Now he wishes he had simply said, why not invest in them because they're babies and they deserve to have some joy in life? In other words, it sounds like Kozal wishes he had expressed more of God's insistence on holy imagination. The expression of holy imagination came to life for me this weekend when I learned that many of my African-American clergymen colleagues were leading a march into the loop to advocate for peace and calm. My friend, the Reverend Chris Harris of Bright Star Ministries stated that by no means do they approve of the violence and the chaos that occurred last weekend by some young people, but at the same time, he said, they're all our kids, our kids. And we need to stand up for and with them and actively show them other possibilities he concluded. To me, that's what it means to use the gift of God's holy imagination. By the way, it's interesting to note that both the sheep and the goats were surprised in this parable. No one expected the shepherd king Jesus to go about the business of sorting and judging the way he did. The goats sure didn't. They were completely surprised to learn that by ignoring the strangers or the sick and the imprisoned, they had indeed ignored Christ himself. For if they had known, they would have acted very differently. Lord, when did we see you and not care for you? The goats asked, totally and completely surprised. Yet the sheep were also surprised by the way the king, shepherd king Jesus went about all that sorting and judging business. Clearly, they were not going through their lives calculating their actions based on some notion of future reward. They were not trying to earn their way into heaven by what they did. Apparently, they were just living their life, actively using their God-given holy imaginations, remembering God's holy insistence that all are of value to God, for all are loved by God, and that God is the judge not the sheep. God is the judge, not the sheep. That's another major emphasis in both this text and in our creed. But not only that, the one we know as Jesus, our Christ, is the one who will be the judge. In other words, the very one who was born of Mary into poverty and vulnerability, the very one who suffered under the powers of Pontius Pilate, the very one who chose not to fight back with violence, but rather to be crucified, dead, and buried, the very one who experienced all that it meant to be human, including feeling God forsaken, the very one who broke the bonds of death and promised us that life will always have the last word, that very one is the only one, the only one who will be the judge of all things, of all people, when we make the claim that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead, we are claiming that he is not coming as someone unknown to us, nor is he different from the one who blessed the children and who hung from the cross. He will not have changed his identity or altered his purpose. He will be the very Christ who's proclaimed in the gospel, always coming to be with us in incomprehensible freedom and inexhaustible love. This promise that we've already seen the face of the one who will set all things right 
is incredibly important because it reminds us that any exercise of God's judgment will be fundamentally different from an act of retaliation or revenge. Just remember how God and Jesus Jesus emptied God's self of power in order to demonstrate the strength of God's love. Furthermore, as we see throughout the witness of Scripture, God's judgment is always about establishing order and restoring peace. God's judgment is always about setting things right, setting us right, and serving the divine purpose of justice, reconciliation, and life in communion, in relationship with God and with all the people of God. That tells me that if the one who will come to judge the quick and the dead is none other than the one we know as Jesus our Christ, then we can be certain that we will be judged, as McLeary put it, in a manner far different, far more surprising, and far more merciful than we dare to believe or even able to imagine. This is why our practice of insisting on living as those who regularly use holy imagination as demonstrated in this text is so important. It's important because it changes us, not God's opinion of us. Let me say that again. Living out our faith, the claims of our baptism, is critically important because it changes us, not God's opinion of us. For as we see in the face of the one who will be our judge, God's opinion of us is always and will always be, you are one of my beloved, a new creation. Any judgment by the one who comes will always be in service of helping us to live and love more fully into that promise, that true identity of who we actually are. So may we once again choose to live with an insistence on holy imagination, not because we have to out of a fear of what might be next, but because we get to out of the promise that in God, all things will finally be made well, including all of us. Thanks be to God that we know the face of the one who will come. Amen.